This podcast is part of the Podbelly Network. Please visit podbelly.com to see a complete listing of all of our other shows. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mixing just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries, eh? Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Polly and their dog Ninja. Hey guys, welcome to episode 209 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. I'm Jerry. And I'm Tracy. No, oh, that's the same as it was last week you were Tracy. No, I didn't say it like that. No, still, you were still Tracy. Is that a bad thing? No. All right, then carry on. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by oh you could take a hot sauce they are everyone's hot sauce not just a mexican hot sauce did you know that no i didn't know everyone they're everyone's hot sauce i expect everyone to go get some okay i must say this real quick yes dakota just put some of that on broccoli that's because amanda did the same thing amanda did yeah on uh amanda said she put it on broccoli and I, I said, I love broccoli, and I love the hot sauce. I don't know if I could eat the two together. But oh. she said it was great, and her son loved it. Well, apparently it's a true statement, because Coda just ate the tar <laughs> out of it. Anyway, El Yucateco is the number one habanero sauce in all of the United States, and it ranks top 10 out of all hot sauces in the United States. Well, good for them. So, uh, I wanted to touch on a couple of them. So we're going to talk about tonight the jalapeno hot sauce, because there's seven different flavors. Five are habanero base, mm-hmm. and one of them is jalapeno, and the other one is chipotle. So we're going to talk about the jalapeno. It's a 1270 on the Scoville scale, which makes this the least hot out of all the hot sauces that they oh, have, the, the flavors. Mm-hmm. Classic jalapeno sauce done the right way. Only the freshest peppers are used for the sauce. It's the mildest of the sauces, but packs a rich flavor and gentle heat. I love gentle heat. I love gentle heat, too. So check them out at shopelyucateco.com and check them out on Instagram under El Yucateco Hot Sauce. Check them out, guys. You won't be disappointed. All right. I want to say a big thank you to all of our military and civil servants all over the world, no matter which country you represent. Thank you for everything you do to keep us safe in this trying time. Yes. God bless all of you angels out there. We appreciate everything you do for us. And we never forget you. We say a prayer every single day. Yep. Obviously, that includes all of our health care workers and Absolutely. people on the front line and all of our truckers. Everybody that's doing a service. Thank you. Then that obviously leads us into people that are struggling right now. Obviously, the big news this week was Elvis Presley's grandson committing suicide. It's horrible, obviously, when this happens to anybody, when the celebrities do it, it just stands out a little more. Yeah. doesn't make it any more important or any any more of a loss to their family that, that they were well-known. Yeah. It's just, you know, everybody suffers during the time of a suicide. Yeah, it's just a shame. It really is. And you never know what's going on behind closed doors. I mean, we've seen several celebrities over the past couple of years and people that you would, would have thought they lived a charmed life. 
And it just goes to show sometimes you just can't get out of your own head. It doesn't matter how much money you got. It doesn't matter how much fame you got. It just doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. what's going on in your head is going to go on no matter what material things are around you. And I think that's what some people have a hard time understanding from the outside looking in. Mm-hmm. But uh, just wanted to say that if you're one of those people and you're struggling, you know, reach out to somebody, please try to get help. If Whether it be us, whether it be in our group, whether it be the suicide hotline, which is. It's 1-800-273-8255. Or you can text at 741-741. Please, please, we beg you to reach out to us. I don't care what time of day or night it is. If you need to call, you call. And um, I know, like we said, our group is wonderful. We're so proud of our group. And there'll be somebody, a lot of people actually, that will reach out to try to help you. So please, just do it. Yep. All right. This story... If you were at the Pigeon Ford show, you've already heard it, so you are not our target demographic. You might want to, you might want to pass on this one. But maybe you just want to hear it again. Hey. How about that? How about that? Because I'm sure we'll screw it up a whole bunch of times at you Pigeon Ford. You know Forge. that's right. So. Some of you may remember that when this show started, I had a different co-host. You did. The marvelous Ricky. <laughs> So the first episode that Ricky and I did were our own personal encounters, just so people could kind of get to know us a little bit. Mm -hmm. The very next episode, which was the first actual story that we covered, was about the Greenbrier ghost in West Virginia. Now, obviously, we did the show a lot different back in those days before Tracy, and we've redone some of those shows that Ricky and I did back in the early days. Uh, to give it a little more detail and to do it to the way that we do it now, which is a little more family friendly and a little more serious. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're, we still have some fun with the stuff, but yeah. but we want to get all the details out. And that wasn't the primary concern back in the Ricky and myself days. We have redone Robert the Doll, Waverly Hills, the Myrtles Plantation, and Bobby Mackey's. And I think that the versions that we did, you and I, mm-hmm were all considerably better and more detailed than the versions Ricky and I did. Like I said, that wasn't our goal back then. Yeah, well, you're just starting out, so. Out of all the stories that we did, I think there's only one left that really needed to be redone, and that's this one. This is the Greenbrier Ghost, and it's an awesome story, and we glossed over it and had a lot of fun with it, but it didn't tell a lot of the details that we have here. So I thought that I would actually uh, go back and dig as deep into this one as I have on anything to just try. And there's, and there's, it's hard to find a lot of extra details on this one, mainly because it was so long ago. And then you got a bunch of different papers that have a little bit of different things on it, but here we go. And not only is it a great story, but I think it's a great story that not a ton of people are familiar with. So it's just, you know, mm-hmm. some of them are a lot more popular than others, and I don't think this one is. So let's go to the summer of 1896. Erasmus Stribling Shoe moved to Lipsay's Mill in Greenbrier County, West Virginia, from Droop Mountain, Virginia, which they, they were only one county apart. So this was on the border of where West Virginia and Virginia meet. So oh, he okay. moved from one county to the other yeah, county yeah. over, but it just happened to be in a different state. So it wasn't very far away. Erasmus went by Edward, but most people called him Trout. So that's what we're going to call him for the rest of the story is Trout. Okay. 
Trout was a tall, muscular, handsome man and a very skilled blacksmith. So when he got to town, he got a job at James Crookshank's blacksmith shop. Shortly after moving here, he met a beautiful 22-year-old woman by the name of Elva Zona Heaster. Now, she fell head over heels with Trout. Now, Zona, as she was known by her friends and family members, was a little more of a free spirit than most women were back in this day. There isn't much known about her life other than the fact that she had a child out of wedlock in 1895 and had no intentions of marrying the child's father. So if you know anything about the days, yeah, you didn't have no, a child no. out of wedlock right. back in, you know, the... Well, you said she was a free spirit. So. She was a free spirit. So she meets Trout. They only dated for like a short while before getting married on October 20th, 1896. Zona's mother, Mary Heaster, was not happy at all about this, and she did not like trout. She just didn't. Not the fish. I mean, Edward. She didn't <laughs> like Edward. I don't really know what her taste in seafood seafood was. I didn't find out any of the research that We I don't did. really need to know the details. Shortly after Christmas, Zona was starting to get ill on a really regular basis with female problems. Mm-hmm. She saw Dr. J.M. Knapp for these medical issues. Now, Dr. Knapp felt that it was possible that Zona could be pregnant again, but wasn't sure. And that's going to come into play a little bit later. Later that month, on January 23rd, 1897, it was early morning. Trout was going to work at the blacksmith shop as usual. On the way, though, he stopped at the home of Martha Jones, better known to most people around the area as Aunt Martha. Her 11-year-old son, Anderson Jones, would sometimes help out with some chores and, and gathering eggs and going to the store and things like that for the Heasters. Trout stops by there and he asks Aunt Martha if she will have Andrew go down to the house and help Zona gather some eggs and help do some chores around the house. Mm-hmm. The strange thing is that he came back three more times to check to see if Andrew had went to the house yet. Nobody's really sure why Andrew didn't go directly to the house after he came the first time and reports vary as when he actually did arrive. What we do know is it was between 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. He knocked on the door several times but didn't get an answer. So he went inside and was shocked at what he saw. The body of Zona Shoe was laying lifeless at the foot of the stairs. Oh, gosh. Andrew's description said that she was laying face down, one arm was outstretched, her legs were straight together, her other arm was tucked beneath her chest, and her head was tilted slightly. It's a pretty good description. Well, yeah, and how do you land, like, in that perfect position? Good question. So he runs home, he tells his mom, and then he went to inform Trout. Martha called Dr. Knapp and the police. So Martha and Trout arrived at the home at approximately the same time. Dr. Knapp got there about an hour later. Okay? Mm-hmm. So here's where things start to look a little fishy for Trout. Uh. You see? <laughs> I, I, I see what I you was did there. To catch that. <laughs> so the doctor was surprised and a little dismayed that upon his arrival, not only had the body been moved, but Trout had cleaned and dressed the body as if it was prepared for the burial already. Dang. He put her. He put this dress on her 
that was this really high, stiff collar dress like they would wear back in the days. Mm-hmm. And he had a scarf on already tied around her neck. Here's what's really strange. At, during this time period, it was customary if a woman passed away for the townspeople, the women townspeople in the community to actually come and clean and dress the body oh, no and kidding. prepare it for the funeral. So this was highly unusual yeah. that he would have already had her dressed and everything. So there was like no blood or nothing anywhere? Right. I guess not? Okay. No, no, there was no, no blood. So even at this point, at this point, they wouldn't, the women wouldn't have even came and done any of that until after an inquest or an autopsy yeah, had been done. Yeah, of course. So the doctor did his due diligence. He made a few attempts to resuscitate Zona before making the obvious observation that she was indeed dead. He did notice some slight discoloration on Zona's right cheek and neck. Now, it's important to note that during this entire time the doctor was looking over the body, Trout was cradling his wife's head and neck, rocking and crying uncontrollably. Doctor went to unbutton the high collar to inspect her neck, and Trout became, became irate and told the doctor to leave. Now, all of this emotion being so, shown out, out of Trout was not typical of him, and the doctor chalked it up to just him being overcome with grief and decided to give him his privacy. Doctor listed the cause of death as everlasting faint, or what today we would call a heart attack. Everlasting faint? Yep, that's what they called heart attacks, I guess, back in the late 1800s. Hmm. So it's important to note, though, that a few weeks later, his his cause of death was changed to childbirth. Because remember, he was seeing her for a couple of weeks over right. what he thought might have been pregnant. So he listed it as complications from childbirth. But did he know that she was pregnant? No, he didn't know for sure. So no. it's kind of odd that he changed that. And it really doesn't have a lot of lot to play in the rest of the story, but it is yeah. important. It was customary then, obviously, for the wake that would be held at the, the people's house. And in this time, they decided to do it at her mom's house. So the body was placed in a casket and was taken by horse and carriage to Mary Heaster's home, approximately 15 miles away in nearby Big Sewell Mountain. Now, while at the wake slash funeral, whatever you want to call it, this is where a lot more strange behavior began being noticed. First of all, from the time the casket was opened to the time that it was closed, Trout's shoe was seated near the head of Zona's body, okay? Mm-hmm. Visitors noticed a few things that seemed odd, to say the least. The first was the scarf that was around Zona's neck. It didn't match the dress at all, but when asked about it, Trout said that it was her favorite. <laughs> so he wanted her to wear it. Also, there was a pillow on one side of her head and rolled up sections of cloth on the other side of her head and as if her head, so her head wouldn't move. Mm-hmm. And when asked about that, Trout said that this is the way that she would be most comfortable. I don't know if he noticed or not, but uh, comfort wasn't really a concern of hers I was at the just time. sitting there thinking, what does it matter at this point? 
most people chalked us up once again, like the doctor, to the fact that he was just a grieving husband. And even though this was strange, maybe, you know, that's just, but he felt like she would have wanted or something like that. Most people, except for Mary Heaster, her mom. Let's remember Mary had a bad feeling from the very beginning about Trout Shoe. Mm-hmm. And it turns out she had a good reason to. Trout had been married twice before moving to Greenbrier County. His first wife had filed for divorce and listed that he had a bad temper and had abused her. She died shortly after filing for divorce from mysterious circumstances when she fell from a haystack. His second wife also died mysteriously when she was struck in the head by a brick while her and Trout were repairing a chimney. He also spent time in jail for stealing a horse. Needless to say, he definitely had some issues that were worth looking into. Yeah, for sure. I bet that brick thing hurt. (laughs) I bet it did. And I bet Tammy Wilder is going to love that comment. (laughs) So Mary was obviously on to something when she had that bad feeling about Trout. Zona was buried the very next day in the Sewell Chapel Methodist Cemetery. What would happen next would lead to the first in United States history. Zona's mother refused to accept the official cause of death. She never trusted Trout's shoes, so she felt that something just wasn't right. Why was he so quick to get Zona ready for burial? Mm -hmm. You know, why was so much attention paid to the comfort of her head, amongst other things? One of those other things was the fact that she had taken a white sheet out of Zona's casket before the burial. And Trout, the mom. Oh, okay. And she, Trout was completely fine with that. So she takes this white sheet out of the casket. A few days later, she notices that the sheet was giving off a horrible smell. Probably because it was taken from a casket with a decomposing body in it. That's just my guess. I'm not a forensic scientist. To get rid of the smell, she decided to wash it. She put the sheet into a wash basin, and the water turned red. It's a white sheet. Water turned red. Then the sheet turned pink, and nothing she could do afterwards would ever lighten the color. It remained pink. So obviously she had her suspicions, but that wasn't good enough to get the cause of death changed to murder. So she did what came natural to her. Over the next four weeks, Mary Easter prayed. She prayed every single night. She prayed for her daughter to come and for her to tell her what happened. So after about four weeks of praying, Mary got a visit from her daughter. One night in February, Mary Easter said she was awoken from her sleep by a rustling sound in the bedroom. When she opened her eyes, she saw Zona just kind of wandering around the room So when Mary went to touch her, Zona disappeared. She didn't say a word, so she didn't get to talk to her. She just saw her for a brief bit, tried to touch her, and she disappeared. So Mary went back to praying to speak to her daughter. So according to official Greenbrier documents, the spirit of her daughter spoke to her on three consecutive nights. So she showed up for four consecutive nights, Mm -hmm. but she spoke to her for three nights. Each time telling a little more, and then a little more about her death, or I guess should I say her murder. 
Most locals dismissed this as hallucinations of a grieving mother. But Mary stuck with her story and was eventually able to convince her brother-in-law, Jonathan Heaster, that she was telling the truth. So the two of them, they went to Aunt Martha's, and they talked to her, and they talked to Andrew. They compared the notes, and they felt that Trout's actions were very suspicious. Suspicious enough because coming four times to see Andrew to find out why he hadn't been to the house yet seemed very peculiar. Why mm-hmm. was he so concerned if he'd been to the house, you know, that that day? It was yeah. almost like, I almost feel like even though it wasn't said, uh, and I, I hadn't mentioned this, but it could come into play. Aunt Martha and Andrew were both African-American. Mm-hmm. And even though I've not seen it anywhere, is it possible that he felt like that if the 11-year-old African-American boy in the late 1800s shows up and she's dead, that maybe he might have taken the blame for it. Mm. So I'm wondering. But he did go ahead, if you remember, and have her all dressed and ready without an autopsy. So if that was his plan, I would have thought that he probably would have let her be autopsied and all, right. and all that. Anyways, so you take you take the situation with him going, asking Andy four times to go there, combined with the crudely dressing her, and the behavior at the funeral, and they felt like they had enough to go to the county seat in Lewisburg and petition to get the case reopened, basically. So they talked to the prosecuting attorney, a gentleman by the name of John Preston. They told him the their concerns uh, and, and about the visits of Zona. John Preston was very skeptical, as you can imagine, somebody telling you that your dead daughter visited you four times. But... He felt that Zona and Jonathan were very sincere. On that alone, he was ready to try to help. So Mary tells John Preston that Zona's spirit said that on January 21st, 1897, that Trout Shoe had returned home from work. He was in a bad mood. Even though Zona did not feel well, she had dinner prepared. But even though there was plenty to eat, Trout was livid that she had not cooked any meat. He began to verbally and physically assault her, culminating in her death. He strangled her to death. We will get into some more details of what's going on a little bit later, but that's the gist of what she told him. This was enough info for John Preston to reopen the case. He went to visit Dr. Knapp, and the doctor confessed that he really didn't do much of a proper investigation of the death of Zona because Trout Shoe's grieving it. And not only this, we talked about how big of a guy that he's big and muscular. The doctor kind of admitted he was a little bit intimidated by Trout. So when he tells him to get up and get the hell out, he got up and got the hell out, basically. So this was enough for Preston to ask for the body to be exhumed. So because this was a very cold weather since Zona's death, the body was still in, in great condition. They performed an autopsy, which showed that Zona's first and second vertebrae were broken. Her windpipe had been crushed. There was also finger marks on her neck indicating that she had been strangled. Between these new findings, combined with Trout's suspicious past with his other ex-wives, the case was brought to trial. Trout was not happy about Zona's body being exhumed. I'm sure he wasn't. And he made it clear that, you know, he would be 
he was not going to be showing up to any inquest and they made it clear to him on March 1st that there was going to be an inquest and he was going to be there or he was you know on his own or he was going to be forced to be at the inquest. So what was Trout Shoe's response about all that? Well, he said that he knew that he would be arrested, but uh, they would not be able to prove that he did it. He was really cocky, really cocky. This statement indicated to most that he at least had knowledge that his wife had been murdered. Even if he didn't do it, he knew about it mm. or had somebody do it because why else would you make a comment that right. they would never be able to prove it? Yeah. Well. At that point, they made the findings of the autopsy public and arrested Trout and charged him with murder. So he was jailed in Lewisburg until the trial that started on June 1897. Mary Heaster, at this point, was set to take the stand. So her attorney, which was the prosecutor, John Preston, decided not to bring up anything about seeing the ghost of her daughter. He wasn't going to bring this up in the trial. And there were a few good reasons for this. First and foremost, even if it's coming from a ghost, that would have been hearsay. And it probably would not have been admissible in court, and it could have caused a mistrial. Yep. Second of all, and probably more important, he felt like if he brought up this topic with with Mary Heaster being the main witness, that the jury might have looked at her like she might have been a bit of a crackpot and that would ruin the case and all credibility. So that's why he didn't do it. What the defense did next did not exactly go as planned. And So here's the funny part. The defense thought the same thing. Mm -hmm. So when the defense got a chance to cross-examine Mary Heaster, they brought up the visions, hoping to discredit her. On several occasions, Mary was asked to describe her dream or vision and was literally told to admit that the four visits from Zona were just dreams. On on three or four different times, they, they would say, now, was this a vision or was this a dream? And she would say, it's a it's a vision. And they would say, now, don't you really mean this is a dream? They kept doing this. And eventually, at one point in time, the defense attorney said, I want you to say that the four visits from your daughter were all dreams. That's the way that went. I guess they didn't have a deal about badgering a witness back then. All right. So she says, on every occasion, these were not dreams. She does not dream. I do not dream when I'm wide awake. <laughs> and then they even asked her, was this a vision or was this the flesh and blood of your daughter? And mm-hmm. she said it was the flesh and blood of her daughter. She told the jury some of the things that her daughter had said. And the daughter said, even though we had plenty of food, including apple butter, some preserves, and some really good bread, he was irate because I had no meat. She said that it, it wasn't the first time that he had ever hit her. Zona described that the neighborhood that they lived in, which was key to this because Mary had never been to Zona's house since they'd been married. She'd never been to their neighborhood. Uh But Zona described it perfect to her. She described what the house looked like. She described that the house was square. She described that if you go to this section, you will see a piece, some blood from my blood during it where he had attacked me. And she's describing this house fully that she had never been to. Oh. So on the how second that work out. Yeah. yeah. 
On the second visit, she says that Zona told her how Trout had snapped her neck at the first joint. Remember, the vertebrae was crushed between the first and the second. Mm -hmm. She told this to the attorney before they even did the autopsy. And it matched up what Zona told her. On the last visit, Zona twisted her head a full 180 degrees to show how broken her neck was. So this was like her mother felt like this was an attempt to show, oh my goodness, she could turn her neck Mm. way farther than anybody should be able to turn, which shows she had a broken neck. So Trout goes to the stand now. He said that the charges were just from having a spite, that that these charges were brought from, not from murder, but just because he had a spiteful mother-in-law. Oh, come on. He did not come across well to the jury. The jury did not like him. It took an hour and 10 minutes to decide that Trout was guilty of murder. Now, Mary, on the other hand, her uh, time on the stand went very well with the jury. Mm -hmm. They actually believed her Mm -hmm. and they liked her and they didn't like him. So the whole plan of the defense of discrediting her completely Backfired. backfired and blew up in their face. So they sentenced Trout to life in prison. But the judge and jury, after deliberating, wanted to make it clear that the sentence and and the guilty verdict had nothing to do with Zona's spirit telling showing up to her mom and saying that. They said it was all due to the other circumstantial evidence and his past mm-hmm. and, you know, the fact of of, you know, all this stuff. So Do you believe that? Uh, no, no, I believe some of it. I believe some of it. Yeah. But I just find it hard to believe that that wasn't the case. But that's what they said anyway. They just wanted to make sure that, you know, people understood it had nothing to do with the ghost testimony. So a few days after the verdict, a lynch mob made their way to the courthouse where they were had shoe house before he went to uh, prison. And the sheriff stepped in and saved him because they were ready to lynch him right there. A few days after that, he was shipped off to Moundsville State Penitentiary. He died on March 13th, 1900, from complications from measles and pneumonia. He was buried in an unmarked grave, like so many people were back then. So nobody is really sure where Where he's at at today. And I said earlier, all this was going to lead to a first. So what was the first in history that I was talking about earlier? This case... The case against Trout Shoe was the first time in United States history that a ghost's testimony was ever used in a court case. That's awesome. There's a, a state highway marker. It's kind of cool. It's silver. I had a picture mm-hmm. of it, but you can pull it up pretty easy. There's a state highway marker in Greenbrier County that reads, Interred in a nearby cemetery is Zona Heaster Shoe. Her death in 1897 was presumed natural until her spirit appeared to her mother to describe how she was killed by her husband, Edward. Autopsy on the exhumed body verified the apparition's account. Edward, found guilty of murder, was sentenced to state prison. And that's the story of the Greenbrier ghost. That is really, really cool. So He thought he was just going to get away with it, didn't he? He thought he was. But he was cocky, and yeah. that never works. Never, ever. So Well, good for her showing back up. That's awesome. Hey, so we've got Karen Petroza coming up. She's a paranormal investigator. Mm-hmm. She's got a, a really cool story about why you don't bring kids 
along on a paranormal investigation and so an experience that she had with, with during an investigation where another group actually brought their kids oh. and she tells you about some of the horrible things that went on there oh, wow. and why you shouldn't do that anyways before we get into that um we're not gonna have we're on our trip to recording this earlier because we're on our trip to pigeon forge for the live event mm-hmm so by the time you hear this, that will be over. But we didn't do any Patreons or anything. We'll do that on next week. Same thing with the iTunes reviews. We'll okay. catch up on all that next week. Um, just wanted to tell everybody ahead of time so they knew. Yeah. I guess it's now is as good a time as ever to go ahead and listen to Karen. All right. Let's listen. Hey, guys. Love having paranormal investigators on. I've got a good one on tonight. Karen Pedroza. She's from Afterlife Investigations of Kentucky. Karen, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Uh, I'm glad to be here. I know you've got a ton of things that we can talk about. And one of the ones that you wanted to bring up, and I'm wholeheartedly in favor of this, is talking about uh, a story that's going to eventually just talk about what you shouldn't do out in the paranormal world. And, and this is something that, you know, like I said, we talk about a lot with other investigators that, you know, we don't particularly like some people's styles that are utterly famous and own museums in Las Vegas, not to point any fingers, but you've got some cool stories. So I'm going to turn it over to you and let you tell us what you got to say. Okay. Thank you. What I wanted to talk about mainly was children in the paranormal, because I don't think that should be. I had an incident, gosh, about seven years ago, and I went to Arizona. I was invited out to investigate with a team, so I went. The initial investigation that I did with them was at a cemetery in, I think it was Glensdale, Arizona. It just went, it went okay for the night. We didn't have any real issues other than the fact that I wasn't pleased with the fact that they had their kids. They had like a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, well, seven, six, maybe five-year-old, maybe a little older, but they weren't that old. And my daughter was 16 at the time, and she went with me. I didn't want her to go, but it was one of those things where they're like, oh, she'll be fine, you know, let's just do this. She can go. She doesn't have to investigate. You know, just bring her along for the ride. My daughter begged to go, and finally I was like, okay, all right, you know, even though I didn't want to do it. So we get there, and everything goes well. The investigation went really well. We had some good evidence that night. As we were leaving, they had these, one of their kids got very sick and was vomiting before we even made it back to the vehicles. And at that point, I'm like, this is not good. One, they should not have brought this child out. Any of these kids should not have been there. That went on with this whole situation. They thought it was all right, and they justified it and I said whatever you know I'm I'm not going to do this any I don't want to do this you know I don't want kids involved and that was just how I felt about it but he calls me the next day I had heard a this a disembodied voice prior to the phone call and it was male voice I thought okay this is cool you know because you know I do this so I wasn't phased by it so he calls me, I guess, 20 minutes or so later, one if I wanted to go. And I said, yeah, I'll go. I, said, I will go to that. I've never been to one. I had never witnessed a house cleansing. I wanted to see it. So this is where the story starts to really start to turn. And it gets bad at this point. So we go to this house and do the investigation on the outside and told about the history and everything, which I thought was pretty interesting. And on the inside, he's going through, and he's got his Bible, and he says he's an ordained minister. 
but he's doing this cleansing. So while I'm watching him do this cleansing, I'm noticing red flags about it because he gets so far into it and then he can't say anything. He stops. He's sweating profusely. He has to go back and start over again. And my daughter at the time was with me that night because I wasn't really doing anything at that point. I was just sitting and watching this. She comes out of her bedroom and she says, Mom, she said she had one of the obvious lists. It was an ovulus. And she said, it cussed me. And I said, put it back in the room. And she said, no, it, you know, it's cussing me out. You know, I don't know what to do. And it, within seconds, it turns around and tells her, calls this no to her and then calls her name. So I kind of get a little bit upset with this because she's scared and it's telling her to not put this box, you know, the office back into the room where it was. I take it from her and go back in there and put it down. And uh, this was the wrong thing to do. You don't do this. Don't ever do what I did because I tell it. You know, you don't do that. You don't scare my daughter. You know, I want you in this room, and this is where you're going to stay. So I put it down and walked out. And in the meantime, he's still doing this cleansing. And in the process of him doing this three different times, he finally gets it done. But there was a man come running out of the room, and he tells, yells at all of us. He tells that we're, we're all crazy and just runs out the door. So I'm thinking at that point, the problem with the house was probably what was running out the door. <laughs> but uh, later, after it's all over with, you know, it, it was calm and it was cool. You know, no big deal at that point. But I was still concerned at the fact that they had brought their kids and had these kids there. And then I had to have, you know, mom was with me because I didn't have anyone really for her to stay with. I was just visiting Arizona. So a day or two later, while well, I was at the friend's house, not not the uh, guy that was doing the cleansing of this house, but it was another girl that was part of that team. I was at her house with my daughter. And we're sitting there, and it's like this picture just lipstick off the wall, and it hits the floor, and we just kind of looked at it, and I lied. I said, well, hey, hello. You know, thought it was pretty cool to see see that. And it, it kind of, it, it just went from there. I mean, the whole thing really went from there because the next morning, she had me take her to take her and drop her son off at school. In the process of this, my daughter calls me, and she's screaming. And I asked her, I said, you calm down. What's going on? And she said, Mom, I'm locked in the bathroom. There's, the dogs are all outside the bathroom. They're barking. I can't get out. They're growling at me. What do I do? So I have her on the phone, and we're doing this talk back and forth. I'm trying to tell her what to do. And I hear a growl over top of the dogs. It was a, it was a deeper, deeper growl that came out from that. And all of a sudden, there was nothing. The dogs weren't barking. There was no growling from them. Nothing. And I told her, I said, you know, tell it that you're protected by the white light of Jesus Christ and that it can't harm you. I said, tell it. And she couldn't even do that. She was that terrified. We go back, because I tell her when she comes out, I tell her, I said, we got to go now. I need to get back to my daughter. There's something going on, and it's not good. So we take off, and we go back to her house, and... In the process of getting there, I asked her, I said, where's the closest Catholic church? Because I know Catholic priests usually exercise, you know, when there's issues like that. Mm -hmm. 
and I was scared. I was scared. And she's like, well, there's there's church like two blocks away. She said, we can go. And I said, okay, let's go. So I get my daughter in the car. And, and prior to all this, at night, she was telling me that she was seeing this dark figure in her room. And this was after the cemetery visit and after the house visit, within just a matter of those few days. So we go to the Catholic church. And I asked them, I said, will you please, you know, pray over my daughter something because this is what happened and I'm not I'm not ready for this because this is just not something I think I can handle. And I'd been investigating for quite some time at that point. So he tells me that I had to watch her. He said we can do this and he said it may cause more issues. They had had issues with people that were having to be prayed over like that. And I told him, it's okay, I'll pay attention. I'll make sure that she's all right. I was scared for several days after that. But uh, he did the prayer ritual of what he had to do over her to protect her. And in the process of all this, you could feel the room started getting colder. So I knew that there was something there. But when that was all said and done, and we had at least she actually felt better. She said she felt better once it was done. So I know that that was some type of attachment that attached to my 16-year-old daughter at the time. And um, I go back, and I'm still not done with it because I know that the house has to be cleansed. And I called a couple of my friends that I've known a long time in the paranormal field, and I asked them, and they both told me what I needed to do. One was kind of mad at me because I investigated with him. He actually helped do my training when I went in. And I, and, I, and I told him I deserved it because, you know, one, I didn't take the initiative and put my foot down and say, no, you know, this isn't going to happen. And then I let them do it not to me, not once, but twice. And that I was, I was, you know, it was my fault for that. You know, it was my fault for allowing my daughter into that situation when she shouldn't have been there to begin with. But point is, children don't belong in paranormal field. That's one thing you don't do. I've heard a lot of people say that kids are, you know, oh yeah, they're sensitive and they do pick up on stuff. I'm not going to disagree with that, not one bit. But when you take a child that's considered innocent into a situation like the paranormal field, you don't know what's going to attach to them at all. So, you know, it just that makes it worse because they're more... Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? They're easier to, um, I guess, kind of a pure spirit to overtake, especially a bad spirit. If they want to overtake a child's mind and or yeah, they're easy. They're easy. Yeah, prey. they're very easy. So, and I had that's that's my big issue with that. I agree. You know, we've done stories in the past where. People have had kids, and if there's something they feel like is evil in the house, they take the kids and they ship them off somewhere else. And, you know, they may stay and try to figure out what's going on, but they get the kids out of there. I know when we mm-hmm. did the um, uh, demon of Brownsville Road up in uh, Pittsburgh, he, one of his biggest criticisms, and, and I think one of his, actually looking back, one of his biggest regrets was the fact that he kept his kids in the house. And he says now that if he had to do it again, he probably wouldn't have. But I know he took a lot of criticism from people who read his book and has heard, heard him on interviews uh, to, to say, why, if you thought all this was going on, why did you keep your kids in the house? Because obviously one of his um, children ended up committing suicide uh, somewhere after the fact that it all happened. But he, they think that it was all tied in 
and you know so I, I think that's you know probably part of of him looking back and, and saying you know maybe that wouldn't have happened and he wouldn't have had struggles later in life had we done you know something different back then that's sad and and technically he didn't know what was going to happen from doing that but it's kind of a, a learning situation too at the same time what not to do I mean, it, it's, it's got to be a tough situation to be into. I mean, you've got a house, and maybe you've sunk all your money in this house. You can't just leave. And at the same time, you don't know what the future holds as far as how bad this is going to get or what it's capable of. And, and you know, you, you like in his case, he just made a stand that I'm not going to let somebody kick me out of my house. I mean, and are, you, are you supposed to just take your kids that are your family and just say you need to go live somewhere else for who knows how long? Until, you know, something like it happens. We're, we're, you know, we see a lot of that with the pandemic right now. There's there's parents who split custody of their children that I know mm-hmm. some parents that haven't seen their, their kids in two months because of the pandemic thing. So and now I see how tough that is on people. So you could imagine if you if there's not a pandemic or something where you have to and you just physically have to make the decision yourself whether to send your kids away for a month, two months or, or how, who knows how long. Right, and that is a very difficult decision to make. I mean, with with that, with my daughter and that whole situation that we just talked about, I didn't know what to do. I knew what I shouldn't have done, but at the same time, I didn't know what to do because I didn't have anybody else that was that she could stay with while I was doing these investigations. And then later on, I mean, this same investigator later on, I've seen it, I guess maybe, a year, year and a half later, after all that took place, he uh, had put he on Facebook. I don't see him on there no more, but they had had a very severe wreck, car wreck, and his wife was in the hospital for the longest time, and ultimately she died from those injuries. So, to me, because of the, and I know this may sound, I'm not trying to sound mean anyway. But I look at it this way. I mean, he was being very reckless with what he was doing and how he was doing it. You know, he wasn't thinking about his children. He wasn't thinking about anybody else that was involved with the investigations that he was doing. And then I found out a little bit later after that, according to some other people, that he had gone through three different types of exorcisms because he had had detachments. So what he was doing wasn't good because I don't think he'd fully gotten rid of his attachments just by what I watched. Sad situation. Yeah, very sad situation. So, but you have to be very careful of who you investigate with, you know, and if they're, if they're bringing kids into it, and I know there's a lot of people that do, and a lot of people think, that, you know, well, my, my child can learn this, you know, well, yeah, they can learn, talk to them. Don't put them out there in a situation that could be ultimately dangerous for them, you, and anybody else that's around. Because to them, it's a game. You know, they think it's fun. They, they don't realize the dangers, especially when they're young, like the ones that I'm talking about. My daughter knew, but she still, you know, look what happened to us. Hmm. Amazing. So, Karen, tell me a little bit about some of the cooler places that you've had the opportunity to investigate? The Shanley Inn. Uh, I've been there, uh, Old South Pittsburgh Hospital. Oh my gosh, there's so many I can't 
think of all of them, Mothman, we've done that one. Uh, but Shanley Inn, we went, I was going up to do a convention. I was going to speak at it, and, and I did a little bit. It ended up being exactly what we had planned for it to do because it was one of my, my teammates in a different group that was in New York. But uh, she put the convention together. We went up, did the investigation. And the Shanley Inn is just an absolutely beautiful old inn. It's, it was a bordello. So that underneath it, there was a tunnel that went out. So when the sheriff came to arrest everybody, everybody ran out the bottom of it. <laughs> but... Uh, is that the one that everybody that you're that you have to sign a waiver to spend a night in? Yes. Okay, I thought so. So I had a pretty interesting experience here. I mean, we did our investigation, and I guess about one about two o'clock in the morning, was tired, maybe three. Decided to go to bed. Went upstairs. I stayed in the blue room because I thought it was cute. It had a little canopy in there. And then the story was was there was a lady that stayed there, and she ultimately committed suicide in the bathroom that was in the hallway adjacent to the room that I was at, that I stayed at. And I don't know, I fell asleep. I had the lights on, I had the TV on, and I just fell asleep. When I woke up, the lights were off, but the TV was still on. And as all this was taking place, I felt something under me. It felt like, you know how someone would like take their arm across if they're gonna smooth out a sheet? Yeah. How to move that top felt, and that came underneath me and across. So I wake up the whole entire floor that I was on screaming because I didn't know what was going on. I was half asleep when it happened. But I tell my friend now because she was in the room next to me, she said, Oh, yeah, I heard you. I'm like, you didn't even come and check on me. I said, I think you all could have gone up the next day and I could have been just totally gone. You know, you just don't ever know. But it was a really good experience. I mean, we had a whole lot of evidence from there and the gentlemen's quarters, women didn't go in. Um, I had a instance where on video, and I don't know if I still have that video or not, but it was filming in the area, the whole area actually, all the way through. And it felt like someone had placed their hand around my neck and was choking me. So I stopped them in mid-conversation because they were explaining each room. And I asked the lady that was there when her and Sal were still, well, I, don't, I don't know about her, I think she's still alive, but I know Sal passed away. But I asked her, I said, I have a question. And she was that, I said, who was choked in this room? Because I feel like I'm being choked. But what I didn't know was a week prior to that, there was another girl that had been in there and she also had the same sensation that I did. She told us that after we went through and did the tour, before our investigation. And then Old South Pittsburgh Hospital is, it's phenomenal. I, I love it. Um, I, it's sad that they, I think they closed it down now due to some issues with building. But it, there's a lot of activity in here too. Well, the uh, the, the, cur mm -hmm. the current owner there is trying to redo the image, so he is not uh, excited about the paranormal past. So he's trying to get away from that part. So he's not allowing any investigations, from my understanding. And 
I even know a couple of podcasters that had old stories of since from interviews with the previous owner that he's tried to make them take those podcasts down and stuff because he doesn't like the image out there. So it's going to be probably pretty tough moving forward to, to get much out of that place. Yeah, probably so. Probably so. I mean, it's, it's, it's got a lot of history to it. It's just a beautiful old building. And I've investigated there multiple times, and, and I loved it. I'll say that about it, you know, since he doesn't want that image. I'll stop there. <laughs> that, so. Well, we all know it's haunted as could be, so you could, he can could say what he wants, but it's already got the reputation. You're not going to be able to change that, you know, not anytime soon. Oh, no, definitely not. I mean, that place has a, the, the basement itself. We were down there, and I, I don't know if it was just me having a moment because we were in the dark. It was super dark, or if something was actually happening to me. But uh, we had, um, I had to get out of it. It was like I was overwhelmed, and it felt like the, the walls were coming in on me. And uh, I had to get out. But it's a great place. It really is. Now, Karen, you've got some corrections uh, work in your background. Have you had any experiences at any of the locations you've worked at? I've not had any experience with any of the locations, but the first prison that I worked at, there were stories about it. It has an older part. It was an older prison, well over 100 years old, and the original cells are still there in the front building. And uh, they said that you can sometimes you could hear the, the jingling of the, the keys and you know, walking footsteps, things like that. And I wanted to get in it. They were actually going to let me in it, but I ended up leaving before I had the opportunity to do that. Yeah, well, it sucks, don't it? I know uh, a young lady, she was she was out in the Arizona area, and she was a corrections officer, and it was on um, the facility she was with. It was actually out on one of the reservations. And she mm. used to tell me stories all the time. She couldn't tell them because she was currently working there. But once once she left and got out of the corrections uh, business, she was able to tell me some of them. So really cool. Mm. Oh, I could only imagine some of the stuff that she had to tell you once she did leave. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then, of course, Steve Asher, who wrote the book about the Kentucky State Penitentiary, um, he's been on the show. He's a good friend of the show. And Kevin Cummings has told his stories. He works out there. And so, yeah, so we've we've been able to get plenty of stories from, from out there. Right. Yeah, KSP has a whole lot. I've heard that it's, it's highly haunted, that one. I worked in the latter prison, the one that was the next size to it, size-wise, here. So that was KSR. But I'm pretty sure they had, they probably have some stories, too, given the facility is a, the only, I think it's the only medical facility for prison in the state of Kentucky. Oh, nice. Didn't realize that. Yeah. I know we had, uh, we had a listener on the other night that was actually telling us he he worked at uh, one of the local prisons here in uh, Lexington, and he was actually telling us some stories from there. So I, you can imagine, though, it's not uncommon for prisons and and these mental institutions and stuff back in the day. Just mm-hmm. so much that went on, that so much despair, so much, you know, just being locked up and all the negative feelings. It's no surprise that, that you know, all these places are haunted. Oh, no, definitely not. I mean, you you had a lot of violence before the policy and stuff changed, but you still get that from time to time. It, it's not as often, but 
when someone dies a sudden death like that and it's a violent death like that, I mean, it's evident you're going to have something out of that for the most part. I agree 100%. Karen, it's been fun having you on. You'll have to come on again and share some more stories. I will. Thank you. I had a great time being on, and I'm going to wish you a great day. All right. Well, thank you so much, and we'll talk to you soon. All righty. All right, guys, that wraps up this edition. We hope you guys enjoyed it. That was, uh, like I said, Karen's story is very disturbing from a standpoint of, you know, don't take kids to investigations. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's no place for kids. Right. You know? Yeah. Especially if they're young, young. Yeah. So anyways, thanks Karen for that story. We appreciate it. And thanks for all of you. And if you and need insurance, help. <laughs> If you need insurance, so life insurance, contact me, Michigan, Ohio, Texas, and Kentucky. If you're in any of those four states, I can do business with you. So, We appreciate you guys, and we hope you have a blessed week.